Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I am very excited today about our podcast guest, Bill McNabb. Bill is the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard and a current director of IBM, United Health Group, and a number of other organizations. Bill's an internationally recognized governance guru, and I'm delighted to have him with us today. So welcome, Bill. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here. So I want to dive right into the talent pool, uh, reflecting back on a talk that you gave to the CEO Alliance back in October of 2015. It was very impactful for me. I still have the notes from that. But it was the first time I heard anyone redefine TSR, which is referred to commonly as total shareholder return, of course. And you redefined it for me and others at the time as talent, strategy, and risk. Massive drivers, maybe the critical drivers for organizations. So talk a little bit about how that redefinition came about for you and why that seems to be kind of front and center in everything you do. Yeah, you know, so it's it, it's so funny that you uh, bring that up um, because I think that talk was the first time I actually had articulated it quite that way. Oh, wow. And, you know, when we were getting ready for the talk, um, you know, I, I was getting a lot of input as to what the group might want. And, you know, one of the things was, you know, how do you see sort of the future in terms of the way boards interact with their companies and you know, how to comp- how should companies be thinking about the critical um, items that they really need to get done. And I start thinking about what we had done at Vanguard and, you know, everything starts with talent and, you know, there, there's that, you know, now probably too often used Harvard uh, um, business review article that, you know, talent trumps strategy, but it does, um, you know, uh, and, and Vanguard was living proof of that. Uh, you know, we, like everybody else going into the, the great financial crisis, um, we thought we knew where we were going strategically, but as you're in the middle of that, all these other opportunities and other issues arose and we had to pivot. And the reason we were able to pivot so quickly and I would say adroitly was we had a very talented group of leaders, very adaptable, um, not afraid to admit, okay, whatever we assumed before is it's not going that way. So we got to we got to change what we're doing. So that's it. Hit me how important talent was to everything, and you know, obviously your talent creates your strategy, and you, you know, you and then you want to contemplate the risks that that strategy entails and how much risk are you going to accept and so forth? And what are exogenous risks that, you know, could actually derail you, but it all starts with the people side. And, you know, so for me, um, that was, you know, that talk actually was where I actually had to put it down on paper. Okay. Let's get the philosophy out. And what's interesting is, um, that was about a year before we started working on a book. Uh, I've got two co-authors and in July, we have a book coming out called TSR. And, and basically our premise is that boards who focus on talent strategy risk and then how it's executed will lead to better long-term total shareholder return. Now, I would tell you, we don't have data to back this up. Um, we just have a ton of experience. But I think it, you know, when, when I think about the companies I admire and the companies who have been great for multiple generations, 
it, it seems to fit. And um, so we, we in, in the book, we actually do a lot of, we use a lot of examples. We actually have tons of outside, you know, uh, investors, directors, CEOs uh, comment. And uh, it, it, it's interesting how it all drew together, but it all started with that talk. And uh, where we had, our, you know, I was asked to articulate, how do you really think about this going forward? Many of our clients are obsessive about strategy. And you have to have a strategy, but I think there's a lot more ubiquity in strategy, you know, kind of industry by industry than there is major differentiation. I'm not talking about Apple that's, you know, you know, but the typical manufacturing company, typical bank, you know, typical services business. And the flip side of strategies is all about execution, right? And execution, the variable always comes down to the people. And yet I feel like people pay so much attention to come up with some kind of strategy. It's like, yeah, but services and a strategy, it's a minimum expectation of the customer today. And yet, you know, I don't think always there's enough focus on the people side and the execution side, but maybe that's my perspective from my own, you know, limited client base. But does that hold water for you? Do you have a different point of view? Oh, no, I think that's 100% correct, Alan. And actually, the data do back that up. So um, actually, Ram Sharam and Larry Posity years ago wrote a book on execution. And their point in the book, they had a lot of data to back it up, was more companies fail due to poor execution than strategic missteps. And, you know, if you think about it, um, and this, again, was an aha moment for me, Um, you know, partway through my career, I got to spend some time in Silicon Valley with, you know, some, you know, really preeminent venture capitalists. You know, the venture capital model, everybody thinks, you know, the layperson thinks that, you know, somebody's sitting in a garage, they have this great idea, and then, you know, they go, they pitch it, and then, you know, the venture capital backs it and if if the idea is that great, they end up making you know a, a, a brand new company. What happens ninety nine times out of a hundred is you start with a really cool idea and a product or service related to that idea, and the marketplace tells you very quickly you don't have it right, and then you like, oh okay, and you adapt, and then the marketplace says no, that's not quite right, and you keep adapting, and the people who are successful at taking that big idea, but actually, you know, working through different phases, if you will, different iterations until it clicks and the execution is great. They're the ones who are successful. And, you know, in a a lot of ways, I think, quote unquote, traditional companies that have been around a hundred years, that's how they should be thinking. They, you know, you should always be thinking, you know, what do we want to be in the long run? But, so many factors are going to come and get in in the way that if you don't adapt and evolve to the current circumstances, you're not going to be successful. And, you know, we see this time and time again. And this is, again, I think companies should pay an unbelievable amount of um, attention to the talent that they have, what you really want to see in a high-performing team is incredible complementarity of skills. You don't, you, you know, you want a bunch of people who can really are, bring different strengths. And then you want people who have a growth mindset. They're willing to keep learning and adapting based on those learnings. If you get that, then your chances of getting to the right strategy and then taking off are really, really good. Much better. Right. So for a long time, I've always heard 
some board members saying, you know, we spend so much, especially public companies, we spend so much time focused on, you know, checking the box and, and audit and looking in the rearview mirror, especially public companies, because we have to, versus looking through the windshield of what's ahead, you know, that strategy piece. But lately, I'm also hearing comments like, we're spending more time on strategy than we used to, but now we're spending even more time on ESG-related matters, you know, which is, you know, front burner for every company for different reasons. What's your perspective on, on that? You know, ESG, I mean, three, four years ago, people weren't talking about the things and it's almost like all they talk about today. So thoughts on all of that? Yeah, you know, so look, I I, I think, you know, there are, there, there's a range, obviously, and and you know there there are, there are some activists out there who are you know they're just passionate about one particular issue or another. It could be climate change, it could be social justice, it could be lots of different things. And and again, the passion is great to see, and it's it's incredibly I think helpful at a macro level. Um, but it's really tough for companies to try to figure out how to navigate all this because you, you know you're constantly you're being bombarded with new ideas and new frameworks, new metrics, um, new rating systems, and it's a lot. And so what I what I advise companies in this regard to do is to step back. And again, you, you'll always hear from me. You need to be focused on the long run, right? You know how are you going to create long term Term value for your shareholders. And in order to do that, you have to have a sustainable business model using the term sustainable in its broadest sense, but certainly ESG fits into that. And I'll give you a couple of practical examples in a minute. But um, what you want to do is as you're thinking about ESG specifically is how do these practices link to your long-term strategy? And it could be your strategy in terms of people. It could be your strategy in terms of product development. It could be your strategy in terms of distribution. It could be your strategy in terms of, um, you know, governance. You know, all of these factors are fair, but you're, the way you think about ESG must be linked to that long-term purpose of the company and sort of strategically what you're trying to do. So, you know, let's take an, a, you know, a real world example of where this is front and center. So you probably saw the news the other day and I'm not involved in this. So I'm, I'm looking at it as an analyst lay person, just like everybody else. You know, ExxonMobil, an activist who owned like a tenth of 1% of the stock came in and put three new board members on who were going to think about climate and the risk of climate. You know, what's the risk? around climate change to ExxonMobil's business. And they're going to, you know, his point was the company wasn't taking it seriously. And, you know, I'm not in the boardroom. I don't know what's happening. I don't know how management is thinking about this. But what I do know from just talking to a lot of people who were involved and reading everything that's been written, they've not been, the company had not been particularly forthcoming in discussions with large investors about how they were actually thinking about climate risk. Like like it or not, if you're a, a fossil fuel company, climate risk poses a series of risks to you. And it could be um, demand for your product. It could be supply of employees who don't want to- Regulatory. Work. Could be regulatory 
category, which would be probably front and center. So all of these things are there. And you know what what I see the best fossil fuel companies doing is they're actually very transparent about it. They're like, okay, yeah, this is how we're thinking about it. Now you may agree or disagree with how they're thinking about it, but that willingness to engage. I think this vote act actually was a reflection of no willingness to engage and actually talk about how these risks are being dealt with strategically. So again, to me, it was a great example of that, you know, not linking ESG and strategy, but I think they looked at it as these two separate things and large investors said, no, we want to, we want to see the integration here. Well, that also kind of speaks directly to your changing role of the investor relations officer article in terms of a whole next level of strategic engagement, you know, full-time, all-time on many levels with your major constituents, right? Because um, clearly there was a, a gap, a big communication gap there, whether they were thinking about it right or wrong, like you said, nobody even really thought they were thinking much about it or they were just ignoring it. And that clearly got them, got them in trouble. It certainly was one of the contributing issues. So yeah. And, and, you know, um, again, you know, large investors, when they, when, you know, many, there's a wide range of opinions around how to deal with climate change. And, you know, we don't have enough time on your podcast to go through all those. However, the one thing that everybody is completely on the same page in, in the investment community is it's a big deal and how companies are either dealing with it or pro, you know, if they're choosing not to deal with it, explaining why is a really big deal. And that is something that you know it's the large investors are going to look for that and you know your i your your ir professionals are going to have to understand that and they're going to have to understand that that level of engagement is something that's going to be around and it's not going away so also in the esg camp is the whole big super sensitive really critical topic of dei and diversity equity inclusion and companies today, you know, again, looking at that as, you know, a major impact on their, their brand, their reputation, their attractiveness as an employer, uh, attractiveness as a company to, to do business with. And sometimes I feel like, um, you know, whenever the issue bubbles up, whether it's climate change or DEI, it, it takes a lot of energy in the boardroom and focus on that. Talk a little bit about your views on not DEI is important because we know it is, but how the DEI dynamic is being dealt with in the boardroom and particularly your thoughts on tying goals on DEI in some fashion to executive comp. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think um, I think DEI um, are incredibly important topics. Um, you know, it's the, the First thing a company has to do, it's kind of parallel to what we were just talking about. Companies have to understand the business case for diversity and inclusion, equity and inclusion. You, 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 there, and there is a really good business case, but you have to actually make that case for you. If, if you just go through the motions as a company and say, oh, okay, we got to do this because we're being told, you're going to fail. And you're, you're not only going to fail on the DEI front, but you're going to fail probably more broadly. So you, you have to really understand the business case. And then you have to be incredibly purposeful. And 
you, you really, and what we see in the boardrooms, Alan, going on right now is really good engagement on the topic between boards and management teams about, talk to us about, you know, how you're thinking about it and how we as a board, and then frankly, the other stakeholders will know if we're getting better or worse, how we're making pro- progress. And, you know, you can overwhelm people with thousands of new metrics, but, you know, usually it's a a handful of key metrics, I think, are going to emerge from this that are really important. And it, again, what I encourage companies to do is to be very purposeful in describing where you want to get to and then having some ways for board, for your board to assess whether you're making progress. Um, I also think it's pretty important, and this is a more nuance, and I think boards are going to have to think about this, and I also think you know a lot of management teams are thinking about it. There are biases here, like we all have them, and a really good understanding of what some of the uncon- unconscious biases may be can actually be very illuminating and very helpful in A, making the case, but also how you think about moving things forward. And I'm, I'll give you, again, one of the classic ones um, that's I think companies are, are getting better at, but um, take, take a company, um, any organization, and they're looking for the next generation of talent and they have a process that they go through. Well, one company I worked with very closely said, you know, one of the things we really want for our leaders, we want them to want to be leaders. Like we want to see an aspirational element to it. And we want to, you know, and and they had interview questions designed and sort of exercises to sort of draw that out of people. What they didn't understand is they had created an absolute uneven playing field for men versus women. Because every behavioral study I've seen, and and again, there are always exceptions, but every behavioral study I've seen says, take two equally qualified people, one male, one female, and describe a stretch assignment to them. The guy will tell you, I've got this. I got this. Yep. And the woman will tell you every reason why she shouldn't be put in that role. Yet they're both going to be successful if you put them in. So I I use that as an overly simplistic example of bias, but companies need to think that through. And, you know, that's a really kind of front and center and well um, documented and, and so forth. And, you know, I've seen it in play, but when I talk about being purposeful, it's actually understanding things like that and, you know, examining yourself. What do we, what do we do that actually contributes to this? So, um, and then, you know, the last thing um, I think boards can really do to help the management teams is um, really draw the right balance between getting something done quickly, because we're all about, you know, speed. And, you know, if you get an opening, we got to fill that. We need that person, but not settling. Um, you know, um, I, I worked with a search firm uh, on an external search for us at one point, and I said to um search firm, I'm not going to make a decision unless I see a diverse slate of candidates. And they like nodded and said, okay, okay. Well, I didn't see a diverse slate of candidates. I, I saw a bunch of guys who look like me and a couple of them were really pretty good, but I was like, I can't choose one of them unless I see a diverse slate. And 
I, you know, my team was getting frustrated. My board was maybe getting a little, I mean, people were frustrated, like, like you're taking too long on this. Well, then they came to me with a, a diverse candidate who blew everybody away. Now I was lucky on that front. So let's, you know, you always take luck where you get it. But the, the, the lesson was, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm not going to settle unless I get a chance to evaluate a diverse slate. And that was a hard thing to do. Um, and it's interesting, um, since then, I've been involved in a couple of searches where we held the search firms to that standard. One case, we ended up with a great diverse hire. In another case, we didn't, but we felt like we had choices. And it took two months longer. And, you know, if you're hiring somebody for a senior role, they're going to be with you for 10, 20, 25 years. Two months is nothing. It's nothing. So anyway, it, you know, I know that sounds so, um, you know, granular and pragmatic, but it works. So do you worry about the really good intentions of corporate America not lining up with the desire to, make, to, to diversify both gender and racially the C-suite more quickly relative to the pool that's getting there, which is kind of what Charlie Scharf got chastised for saying, or are we all victims of long-term unconscious bias and structural um, impediments? And we can actually get there, you know, fairly quickly as many companies aspire to do. How do you see that playing out? Yeah. Um, so look, I think that, I think, I actually think the truth is somewhere in the middle there. Um, no, but I, you know, it's interesting, you know, um, Again, we when we were looking at um, investment professionals for our investment team, and we were looking for people of color, and you know, people will give you, you know, um, pages and pages of data that show, you know, every you know all the top business schools what their racial profiles are, and you know, people of color, the pool is really small. Um, however, um, we were fortunate, you know, at Vanguard to actually attract, you know, some really great young talent uh, who happened to be, you know, racially diverse and um, they were doing great. But I got to tell you, you know, in, in full transparency, I saw unconscious bias at work, even at a, even our own place. This is, you know, going back a number of years, but, and it wasn't that anybody was saying, you know, because, you know, he's black and she's white or whatever, but like, who's going to mentor whom and so forth. And they were more subtle. And so we, we actually stepped back and actually rethought our whole process. And um, interestingly, it made a huge difference, uh, made a huge difference. So I think, I think while in certain types of roles, the pools are much smaller that's okay. Companies aren't even at that level. <laughs> okay. So that's where I still think you can make a ton of progress. And again, to me, um, and this, to me, what we really should be very focused on, and it's a really hard standard is equality of opportunity. And I think a lot of times companies and boards, they sometimes confuse equity and equality of um, opportunity. You know, they, they, the reason there's not as much equity is because there's not equality of opportunity. And I think if you really focus on what you can control, um, 
then you can make a lot of progress. Will you get to where we ultimately want to get to? We're going to need some structural help. There's no question. Well, a lot of organizations have taken to um, doing resumes blind, right? Taking the names off, taking the, you know, if there's a home address, taking location off, you know, in order to try to, you know, preempt any kind of unconscious bias. And, you know, I hate to say, but there's, it makes a lot of sense, especially in certain industries, certain companies, certain geographies. The early data on that is it actually helps. Um, so we'll see over time, but uh, the early data is it's actually pretty helpful. Well, and I, I think about my own kids who are, you know, college age and um, how they look at the world today. You know, I think long-term, the culture of a company like Vanguard and the values and the embodiment of that, where the people actually see it more than just, you know, window dressing or niceties in the process will make a difference over time. Because ultimately we're talking about a long-term fix here. I mean, there are things we can do better in the short term. Absolutely. Things like, you know, what, what Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier, two guys you probably know well, have talked about identifying people mired in the middle of an organization from diverse populations that don't have the network or the connections or are overlooked or taken for granted, pulling them up and saying, hey, are you interested in more? Because we think you could do more and then helping them. So I think there's a lot that can be done, but I think long-term, you know, getting the right people in on the ground floor, which is what my kids want, you know, when I think about their peer group, I think I think companies like Vanguard certainly will potentially have an advantage because of the culture and, and that equality of opportunity that's woven in the DNA more than the average company. Well, I think that's fair. And um, look, you know, if you look at the C-suite at Vanguard today and the number of women who are part of it, the, you know, two senior leaders who are people of color, um, you know, there's no investment firm that looks like us out there um, at our side, you know, and, and we're proud of that. But, you know, to be very clear, like the people who are in each of those roles, they are unbelievably talented. Um, you know, we want the best people. Um, you know, you, you said something, though, that I think is very important on this journey. Um, so if you're, you know, giving practical advice to companies, you know, what do you do? Entry level you can change the game pretty quickly um, if you change the way you do entry-level hiring. Um, so we have a leadership program at Vanguard where people get it. You know, we have lots of ways to come in. You can come in, and you know, you're come in on the customer service side or the operation side, and then we have this leadership program, uh, which where we tend to get the you know I'll call them the the top of the top, you know, in, in coming out of schools and so forth. But by being very purposeful, again, not accepting slates that aren't diverse, you can actually change the tenor of your hiring pretty quickly. And then you begin to get some bottom-up pressure in terms of people, you know, tremendous levels of, you know, all kinds of what very diverse talent uh, begins to emerge. You know, we started uh, those programs, you know, many of those programs 15, 20 years ago, and the leaders who are emerging now are unbelievable. Now we're lucky that we, or maybe we were purposeful that we started That's right. programs um, those years, so many years ago. But you know, with the way things move so quickly today, and especially in younger companies and smaller companies where battlefield promotions are constant, you can actually move the dial here again if you're very purposeful about what you do on the front end. And you know, I I, I think enough 
I, I, I again, you know, your practice is pretty broad, Alan, but you got a lot of Philly or, you know, East Coast based um, clients, you know, within two hours of Philadelphia are 110 universities. We produce more, you know, undergrads and graduate yep. students than Anybody. any place in the country. I think Boston, Boston beats us in one and we beat them in one. I can never remember. Exactly. I've seen that data. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But I prefer know, the Philly win, by the way. Yeah. And, and, and you know, if, if you've got that kind, you know, when you got that kind of advantage, if you will, is, you know, all that talent to draw from, you can really do it. And this is a very diverse community. So, so my, my last question is, I, I have a perception that you're very passionate about board education. I know you've done a lot of speaking for National Association of Corporate Directors, where I'm involved on the board locally. I know you're a fellow with Drexel um, and the Governance Institute there, which has done an awesome job. Talk a little bit what you think the expectation and standards for director education should be, because in, in one sense, you've got you know, most boards, especially public companies, very talented people like you, C-suite leaders from major name companies sitting there. And on the other hand, there's always room for improvement. Even in those cases, you know, maybe they're on the audit committee, but maybe they're not quite as knowledgeable on, you know, particularly current about, you know, new county procedure or the comp committee, which is super complicated. So what's, what's your take on what the standards should be across organizations if there should be one? Well, let me just, you know, to frame it, let me just talk for a second about board composition. So, and, you know, I'll start with Fortune 500 companies and then we can broaden it. But, you know, in the Fortune 500, you know, the the kind of 10 years ago, everybody wanted like an all-star suite of CEOs as their board, you know, either current or recently retired. I actually don't think that's relevant. I, I, I don't think it's as effective. Um, and... Every you know, every large company, it's nice to have a couple either sitting or former CEOs sure. for your CEO because it's you know again I remember I had two former CEOs or current CEOs actually and one former in my boardroom, they were unbelievable. Like well, you had Raj Gupta at one point, right? I, I, had, Ra I had Raj, uh, Ann Mulligan at Guardian Life, Amy Gutman at Penn, right? Um, you know. They had walked the walk. So they they knew what you went through as a CEO. That was incredibly valuable. But there's also a real need for domain expertise. And depending on the nature of the company, that domain expertise is going to look different. But, you know, again, in Vanguard, we're an investment company. So we had, you know, in the early days, in the Jack Bogle days, we had Burt Malkiel, who wrote the book Random Walk on Wall Street, you know, should have probably won the Nobel Prize in economics. And later on, we had Charlie Ellis, who wrote, you know, one of the most famous investment books, and Andre Perold, who is a Harvard, an endowed Harvard professor in investment management, who trained many of the great investors of our era. These, and that, and then, you know, last, you know, I, um, one of the guys I added was Scott, uh, Scott Malpass, who was the CIO at Notre Dame, best performing endowment in the world. They brought so much domain expertise to investing, which is core to what we do. Now, were they going to be as broad on the talent discussions or could they go deep on, you know, um, IT and cybersecurity? And Not as much, although they're really smart guys. They picked it up quickly. But the point was their domain expertise was really valuable to us. You know, United Health, we have two 
unbelievable clinical practitioners, you know, the former head of the Mayo Clinic and the head of Morehouse School of Medicine. I mean, I sit there in awe with what they know about, you know, clinical procedures and drugs and so forth. I can do a good job on the audit committee, but I can't touch them on the clinical side. And so again, that mixing and matching. So I, I, I give that as context. Um, so, you know, from an education standpoint, I, I think the formal stuff that NACD does, Drexel, um, Wharton has some programs. Of course, all the major schools. Um, all the major schools do. I think those are really good for people to attend because it gets into one of your earlier questions about the difference between being a board member and being part of management. And for a lot of people, that's actually a big step. It was for me. And, you know, having some perspective in a classroom setting around that's really helpful. Um, I would also say, though, from an education standpoint, that um, it doesn't stop with just the governance stuff. You got to keep educating yourself on the business that your company's in. And you've got to find sources of information, frankly, that are outside the company um, so that you get some unfiltered opinions and some different perspectives. So, you know, I, I, because of my contacts in the investment world, you know, I, I have access to a lot of analyst reports on the companies I sit on, whose boards I sit on. They're, you know, there are fans and there are detractors. Um, I get to see it all. I, I think our, our teams on those boards are good enough that they show us everything. But I, I know I can get access to stuff that's not necessarily going to be out there, you know, for broad distribution. So, and I think people have to do that. You know, one of my colleagues on one board goes to um, industry conferences as an independent, just shows up and, yeah, great. you know, sits down and listens and picks up stuff. And when she comes back and starts asking questions, everybody's like, where, where, where's that coming from? Well, she picked it up at the conference. So there, there's lots of little tricks like that that people need to play. But, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, this idea you've got to constantly be learning. You, you've got to and you, you, you could talk about governance. You could talk about the industry, um, any other topic, you know, within there, you know, just finding ways to make yourself more knowledgeable. It's really important if you're going to be a good board member, you know, being a board member today, whether a private company, public company, nonprofit for that matter, it's hard work. Um, I think there was a time when maybe it wasn't as hard. It's really hard. You got to put a lot of hours in. You got to read a lot. You got to absorb a lot. And that's great because that's hopefully going to make companies better over the long run. Well, uh, I think it's a great point to end on. And, you know, you can never stop learning. You should never stop learning, particularly as a board member when you've got so many stakeholders depending on you to, to make the right kind of judgments along the way. So thank you. Sincerely, thank you. This has been so awesome and awe-inspiring. Bill, I, I'm really grateful for your time here today. Well, always great to see you, Alan, and uh, look forward to when we can do it in person. You've been listening to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners, here with Bill McNabb former CEO and chairman of Vanguard. If you'd like to hear more from Bill or other guests of ours or learn more about our firm, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us.